So, yeah, today the topic is anarchistantive reaction at the growing nationalism in Russia, and uh, this talk is based on the interview I gave for the Mapa Journal already in August. So it's already some months past, but uh, this was pretty general, so it's still not really outdated. And yeah, MAPA is, is anti-authoritarian alternative Portuguese paper. If you read Portuguese, I can recommend it. I don't read so much, but it's actually coming up regularly, so it's still possible to print alternative anti-authoritarian press in Portugal. And yeah, so they basically yeah, they ask questions about uh, anti-war movement and growing nationalism in Russia. And I'm not a scholar, I'm an activist. I haven't been in Russia for 10 years, but I'm still pretty much involved in the anti-authoritarian movement in Russia. So yeah, I tried to give this answer the best I can. And the first question they asked, but what are actually anarchist and anti-authoritarians doing in Russia during the war? When I gave the interview, it was five months since the beginning of the war. Now it's almost uh, nine months. So how, how is the resistance going on? And, uh, and uh, is it possible the resistance to exist? Yeah, the resistance is definitely existing. Anarchists were very much joining the protests in the actually in the August. There was still like almost every day protest. There was, I guess, less than two weeks of days without a single protest. And almost every other day there were some sort of protest in Russia. In my opinion, it's a big protest movement. It's not big enough to stop the war, but especially in the first days, anarchists were very active and important in the street protests, but now there has been so much repressions against the street protests that uh, actions have become more decentralized. There are different kinds of, of graffiti installation and stickers and this kind of, of things. And uh, Protest movement, of course, is much more wider than the anarchist movement. There are people with all the kind of, of political orientations. There are liberals, there are leftists, even there are even anti-war Stalinists and anti-war fascists and conservatives. So all the kinds of people are against the war. But generally, it's much more anti-authoritarian in character. The way of organization, the decentralization, decentralization. There are attempts to really avoid the centralized authoritarian leadership. So it's a big change from the Navalny movement, which was dominating the Russian opposition maybe almost 10 years. And the movement just such as feminist anti-war resistance, they are they are not, of course, explicitly anti-authoritarian and there are people with different kinds of political views, but uh, I think their method, there are anarchists involved and their way of organizing is, is anti-authoritarian. And also another organization, Vesna, human rights movement. Also, it's not anarchist, but, but uh, it is making calls to decentralized protests. 
And uh, yeah, so basically anarchists have two different strategies or maybe three. Some are organizing, like spreading anti-war propaganda. Also lots of online, maintaining online resources. This is, for example, what Autonomous Actions is currently doing with the autonom.org website. And then there are anarchists who are organizing direct actions, like the anti-anarcho-communist fighting organization, BOAK. Uh, you can follow the activities from the websites and Telegram channels. And Telegram channels have become very important means of communication in the Russian anti-war movement because the authoritarian authorities haven't been technically able to block the telegram. So the second question was that um, we have understood this imperialist aggression of Russia against Ukraine as a sign of ever-growing national feeling in Russia. How do you characterize the nationalism in Russia and does it impose itself in cultural diversity of the Russian Federation? And what is the role of the Russian far right in it? So yeah, there's ultranationalism in Russia. It has kind of a long history, almost 200 years, maybe in the 1840s. In the 19th century, it's, it's rooted in the Slavophilia movement, which is not necessarily completely Slavophilia in heritage. What I didn't say in this interview is that uh, you cannot say that the Slavophilia movement is completely reactionary because these national romantic ideas of, of Slavophilic, they also had some influence on the Russian anarchism and on the authoritarian thinkers like, like Herzen and, and Agare van Bakunin. So even though there was very strong also tendency in Slavophilia that, that it's to go back to that sort of orthodox Christian religion. But uh, then uh, there was kind of the Slavophilic movement, it was kind of recuperated by the Russian elite. They, they took the Slavophilic ideas to, to make this kind of uh, reactionary modernization in Russia, to make Russia more like a nation state, because it was obviously in the mid 19th century very complete or almost completely feudalic system, not based on any kind of nationalist identity, but only on the religious identity and, uh, and uh, this kind of feudalistic class, class relationship, which cannot, of course, survive in the modern world. So Russian elite needed some tools to modernize the system without losing their power, and they picked uh, many of the Slavophilic ideas. Even though originally Slavophilic, they were all against the, the serfdom. They wanted to free the slaves, the serfs in, in Russia and so on. So originally it was part of this general reforms, liberal reform movements. But then these ideas got recuperated to the elite. And then uh, after revolution, there was a big uh, immigration like huge uh, this white immigration, not completely reactionary, but it was dominated by reactionary monarchist tendencies. And they synthesized these Slavophilic ideas with fascism and national socialism. And uh, unlike anarchist and socialist, they managed to have a continuation. There was, was um, these emigre fascist movements, they existed continuously from the 20s to the perestroika times until the 80s. 
They continuously tried to spread the propaganda in the Soviet Union. They tried to infiltrate, usually with not so much success, but uh, this uh, press that uh, the emigre fascist was, was publishing. It was important channel of communication and also at some point many even liberals, they were writing to these papers. Most important organization might be the National Alliance of Russian Solidarists, which was basically Russian version of cooperatist fascism. And uh, they managed even to immediately after the death of Stalin, the first nationalist groups even emerged in the Soviet Union. And so they had a certain basis, which immediately growed very fast during the perestroika time. And already during the perestroika times, they managed to create big ecosystem of nationalist publications and organizations as networks. But one should understand that there was not really like collapse of the Soviet Union. It was not really a revolution that the opposition never came to power. What remained in the power in this new Russia is the old nomenclatura, especially the FSB cadres, but also all these oligarchs, they are mostly cadres of the Communist Party or Komsomol. So, so it was just kind of switch of the property relations, but with the same faces. Dissidents never, some of the dissidents, they, for example, managed to become Duma deputies for a while, while there was still for a short period democratic elections. But all these dissidents and nationalists, they never came into power. And this was, of course, a big uh, disappointment. Appointment. Even though the elite also was interested of the Slavophilic uh, concepts and, and reactionary concepts, like Putin, as we know, is a fan of, of Slavophilic ideas and Anilin's philosophy and so on. But this real uh, nationalist, they never came to power and uh, already in the 90s they start to be very antagonistic. And uh, this nationalistic movement, they basically they were against the whole Russian system. They considered the Russian system as a uh, multinational uh, twisted state, which is controlled by the red Czechists or, or maybe Jewish and so on. So they basically, basically wanted uh, to dismantle the Russian, Russian uh, multinational state and instead of this to create the Russian national state. And they had the mass movements like the Russian National Unity. They had a huge press. I don't remember anymore if this, this Barkashov's party, if they managed to print like half million or, or one million papers. But it was a, a true mass movement. But these mass movements already were crushed in the 90s. And nationalists started to organize terrorist attacks. First year of this, this fascist terror was 2008. There were more than 100 uh, fascist murders. And this is also time when the Antifa in, in Russia organized as a countermeasure, grassroots countermeasure against this nationalistic terror. But soon, like this kind of 90s chaos started to come to end and authorities started to repress these nationalist terrorists. And, uh, and uh, many of the most active and, and capable terrorists, they were killed or put to prison to very long prison sentences. These people mostly are, are still in prison. And uh, But also the war of 2014, it was a big uh, shock to the nationalist movement. They were completely splitted. 
because uh, before this there was kind of common fronts of secular nationalists and orthodox christian nationalists and pagan nationalists and uh, orthodox fundamentalist christian they all kind of were networked to each other all the different parties they had discussions and so on all of them were going to this russian march also with alexei navalny kind of liberal and nationalistic leader there was kind of a common front basically trying to make strong Russian identity and, and first of all against migrants and Muslims and uh, Islamists and Chechens and so on. But this 2040s it was a moment of split because uh, those nationalists who were most like ethnic nationalists who wanted to see Russian ethnostate they were supporting the Ukraine in the war and of course completely then marginalized by the authorities and other fractions who basically were ready to make peace with the multinational Russian Federation and who were basically just wanted to who considered that first important step is to is to recreate the Russian Imperium and they were, were supporting Russia there were like few of this ethno-fascist also choosing the Russian side, but, but mostly not. And this split uh, was a huge blow to the nationalist opposition and they still haven't, uh, haven't recovered. This Russian marches in Moscow, they used to gather something like 10 or 15,000 people, like a huge amount now. There is just a few hundred of people before the COVID and, and during the COVID mostly completely repressed. So all of this very... Like I would say that probably the nationalist was the most important extra-parliamentary and opposition movement, also huge influence in the football, hooligan subculture and so on, but it's nothing, it's just a shadow of itself. And in the meanwhile also the Russian elite, they move more and more to, to the nationalistic uh, direction. They used to be very concerned of this extreme right, they were stressing that there is like difference between Russian uh, kind of state identity and ethno identity that you can be of different nationalities, you can speak different languages, but you can still, you are still, we are part of the same great empire. But all this Ukrainian war, it's, it's goes around this identity stuff. It's the whole, it's the whole idea that Ukrainians, they are just some sort of Russians who went psycho, who think that they are a different uh, ethnos, but they are not. So this whole Ukrainian war, it's very much revolving the ideology of the war. It's revolving ar around this ethno-nationalistic ideas. And, uh, and it is also shifting the whole Russia towards monolinguist ethnostate concept. It's about going towards the direction what this ethno-nationalist always wanted Russia to go. And uh, the ethnic minorities, they are reacting very strongly against this, not only because many minority groups like Buryats and, and Tuvins and so on, they are drafted much to the war, even before the mobilization and, and a huge amount of casualties, but also because it, this is not really like multinational war, this is a war for Russian ethno-nationalistic ideology and this kind of 
in most of the Russian regimes, they were not very significant separatist or ethno identity movements. There are some some exceptions like Ersa nationalists and and so on, but never really like not not and of course Chechens, but not so much like demand of, of splitting from Russia or something like this. But now they are like this kind of anti-colonialist and separatist voices. They are getting much more stronger. So. Another question by, by Mapa. Confront with the imposition of war, how is the opposition to war in Russia coming to be? Is the burden of Russia victims and the loss of the supposed brotherhood with the Ukrainians already felt in the Russian society? So, at this point I have to say that, yes, I, of course, I follow the news, I follow all the possible and impossible news channels about the protest in Russia. But because I'm not living in Russia, I don't really have the feeling of how, how is the Russian society like, what are the people, like random people in metro or, or cafes, what are they discussing? So, and, and I also have a bit um, kind of contradicting signals. Uh, one friend of mine said uh, she visited St. Petersburg, she went to Georgia, went to, at, it actually was before even the war started, but had to go to St. Petersburg for paperwork and uh, say that there is not even protest, that people are not even planning or discussing anything, that there is complete apathy and, and sadness. But in the other hand, uh, I see that there are, well, the time like different new tendencies, like when I gave the interview, there were protest movements, new protests of the mothers of the missing soldiers. And now I see some mutinies of the soldiers who haven't been paid their wages. So there is all the, all the kinds of new protests coming up also. But yeah, after in the August, yeah, there was some sort of lull of the protest movement. When there was mobilization, there was new protest with thousands of people participating and, and thousands of arrests. But it was only in the week of the mobilization. Now it's again, it goes to bit bit of the lull. Mm. And um, but also there was was all the time there has been reports of Russian soldiers refusing to fight, and even like special camps and and prison camps for soldiers who are refusing to fight. So there is all the time this kind of tendencies. Tendencies coming, coming and going, and uh, I think it's for sure there will be a new wave of anti-war protests and protests which are not necessarily moral. This might be even people who are kind of never was so much against the war, but they are concerned about the wages being paid or, or bad treatment of the soldiers and how the economic situation is getting worse and, and more and more people are dying. So there is a bit of this kind of moralistic discussion in the Twitter, for example, that, oh, they were not protesting against the war. They just uh, don't want the economy to collapse, so they don't want to go to war themselves. But this is how basically all the important anti-war movements have happened. There is are different motivations, sometimes just very egoistic and selfish motivations, but uh, it's still 
Like, it doesn't really matter why people are refusing to pay for the war or go for the war as long as people are refusing, the war machine will collapse. And there is still a like, steady wave of anti-war orson attacks against military and logistic targets. There is basically, in August when I gave the interview, it was happening on the weekly basis, then the first two weeks of the mobilization, there were maybe 20 new attacks. And, and some of these people have been caught, but, but mostly not. And, and they are continuing. So obviously the resistance is going on and at some point it will get stronger. So the next, next question was about the left. We have seen different reaction with the leftist spectrum and even with anarchist towards this invasion by Russia with some condemning it and others applauding. Can you explain this divisionness with the spectrum on the global scale and even within Russian and Ukrainian societies? Well, I mean, at least fortunately, I'm not aware of any anarchist supporting the Russian attack. But there are some other, again, anarchists who kind of want to maintain a position of that they are against both, that they are against both Russian and Ukraine. Even in the situation when this is like very abstract position and, and there is no any concrete solution unless you propose that anarchists organize some sort of Mahnovist brigade uh, between the two armies, which is of course would be a complete uh, fantasy suicide mission. But yeah, Ukrainian anarchists, they are not involved in this kind of some sort of stupid suicidal projects to fight against the both sides. But they are helping Ukraine to fight against the Russian advance. And uh, those Russian anarchists who still want to maintain some sort of struggle, who are not only concerned about stuff like researching anarchist history or something, they are supporting Ukrainian anarchists in their resistance. But there is not always, it's not that all anarchists or non-anarchists are making some sort of explicit statements of support because, because there is now quite heavy penalties also for anti-war statement. You can simply just go to jail. So depending on their personal situation, people are maintaining higher or lower profile. But yeah, so in the general left, of course, it's more topic and one would maybe need to write books like what's wrong with the left, why they cannot really figure out what is going on. I think, yeah, obviously one thing is that there is some sort of disillusionment of the outcome. Like, of course, yeah, there is lots of discussion about post-colonialism, but uh, also for some reason people cannot really connect post-colonialist uh, discussion with the current situation in Ukraine. And also I see that there is some sort of disillusionment because in the 50s and 60s and 70s it was pretty straightforward to, for anarchists to support anti-colonial movements. But often uh, the results of, of this movement, even if these movements gained in most of the cases independence, this result of these new governments and states, it was uh, disappointments. And because of this, somehow we even made uh, made conclusion that national self-determination is kind of failed idea or that it's not really important that we can sacrifice national self-determination for the sake of peace. And then, yeah, of course, 
especially some older generation people like Chomsky, they might be, or Chomsky, it's, it's Chomsky in Russian, but, but Chomsky in English, they might be afraid of the nuclear war, which I think in this case is overestimated risk. Like, uh, of course, we don't see in the head of the Putin, but I, I don't have reasons to believe that Putin is so, so crazy that he would like to start the nuclear war. And also it's quite typical that many people are able just to analyze everything in their own national context. And uh, obviously like places like Latin America, Italy or Greece or Yugoslavia, they have their own history it's with the United States and with NATO. They are, don't see that as some sort of benevolent force. And yeah, it's true that history repeats itself, but it's not always the same story that history is repeating. And I think that, yeah, after, even after 100 years or more than 100 years of history of anti-colonialist struggle, the left still doesn't really grasp what is the colonialism and what it's not. And also, actually, in the case of the anarchist movement, like this is the whole, um, this is important or interesting point of research. Actually, what is the relationship between historical anarchist movement or revolutionary syndicalist movement and anti-colonialism, but I think there were some blind spots. Like for example, uh, Spanish anarchists were not necessarily very much interested about uh, resistance in the Rif in the north of Morocco being crushed by the Moroccan army until they needed more allies against uh, Franco, but, back th but at that point it was just too late to, to create some sort of, of, of common front. But yeah, I have a couple of couple of other texts, other other transmissions which I made before. One was a couple of days before the war. I made a text called "Why Should We Support Ukraine?" and then I wrote um, in the after that text "Misconception About Imperialism and Anarchist Collective Traumas." But um, maybe I should have uh, written even more. But yeah, then the last question by Mapa. As after five months of war, things continue to be clear regarding what will happen in the future. What do you think can be the future scenario on that region? And do you think it's plausible scenario that a, a drastic change in the Russian society will happen? Well, yeah, I don't see Russia is... What happens in Russia is difficult to predict. There is obviously several scenarios. But uh, all the historical precedents would say that the last war would, might mean collapse of the power structures in Russia, like all the major transformation in the Russian society during the last 170 years have been due to the failed wars. Actually, I recently read a major book about Kropotkin, which said that Kropotkin was actually disagreeing with this, because, but yeah, the common common opinion of many historians is that abolition of Sedom was the consequences of the lost Crimean war. Kropotkin didn't agree, but still. And also abolition of absolutism was the consequence of the lost war against Japan, the 1905 revolution, which kind of made Russia a constitutional monarchy. And then abolition of monarchy, those consequences of Russian defeat in the Eastern uh, theater of the First World War, and then uh, Soviet Union 
collapse had a lot to do with the war in Afghanistan. And it doesn't totally doesn't seem like Russia is winning the war in Ukraine. And uh, and uh, actually, uh, the only people which I think in the February were kind of positive, like people I know were about positive about the war. There were some anarchists in Moscow who think that this is really the chance to kick out Putin, like he made a mistake of his land time. And unless Putin is being put out from his position now, he's probably the president until he dies. But also there is another possibility. It's possible that Putin manages to spin, that he was beaten by an overwhelming and cunning, cunning coalition by the NATO and which would just create uh, resentment against the West and, and more isolation and instead of anger towards the own leaders. So it's possible that everything may happen and actually what I was thinking after this interview is that basically pretty much everything except giving all these territories back to Ukraine, including Crimea, might be possible to spin in Russia as a victory. And even though Ukraine has gained some big victories, it's still a very long way to go to take back like Donetsk and Lugansk and Crimea and so on. So even if Putin manages to keep even smallest piece of land, for example, even if he has to give up Donetsk and Lugansk, but he manages to keep the Crimea, he may spin the whole war as a victory. If he manages to get Crimea kind of accepted as the part of Russia. So it's still uh, kind of possible that uh, that uh, Putin manages to present the result of the war as a victory. So, and, and his grip of the power will become even bigger. So we have both of these scenarios, but what is interesting thing in Russia that often you cannot even know what is happening the next day. So it's pretty hard to predict what happens after half year or so one year. The course of history in Russia is usually way much faster than, than in Western Europe, for example. But okay, this was everything from this time. I hope I was just not going too fast and, and you got, got some points. It's been quite some time since I made last time recording in English. And I don't know what will be the next topic. I would be quite interesting, interested to discuss the climate change and Russian politics and the Putin's position and how is anti-Putin movement connected uh, with the climate movement. But uh, yeah, hopefully can talk about this in a couple of weeks and not have a, a three months or four months break like it happened now. But anyway, thanks for, for following. Thanks for following the stream, for checking the podcast for my channel and, and hope to see you soon in the next time.